So we come to Genesis chapter 37 this morning, and be honest with you, how many of you feel like we've been in Genesis for a really long time? We have been. And this Sunday, we actually begin the final act of Genesis. It doesn't seem like it, but it's the final act. Um, The last 14 chapters that we have to cover here seem like a lot, but they are important chapters in Scripture. They're very important. Last week, Pastor Andy did a great job with a really hard text. Um, I don't know what happens when I go away on vacation, but somehow these guys get some really hard text. What a bummer. Um, (laughs) But Genesis chapter 36 was the generations of Esau. In fact, if you look back at chapter 36 and verse 1, you see this phrase repeated that's been repeated all throughout the book of Genesis, the generations of. And that is Moses' cue, that's the Holy Spirit's cue to us, that the focus of the book is about to change a little bit. And when you come to Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. You'll see it elsewhere in the book in chapter 2, the generations of the heavens and earth, chapter 6, the generations of Noah, chapter 10, the sons of Noah, and it just repeats over and over, the generations of. The generations of Jacob are primarily going to be about Joseph. Joseph's an interesting guy. He's going to become the main character for the rest of the book. What's interesting about this guy is he is hardly ever mentioned in the New Testament. He's hardly ever mentioned in the New Testament. He's not included in the patriarchal list. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not Joseph, though. But he's quite a figure. In fact, doing a little bit of counting and looking at it this week, there is more written about Joseph in Genesis than there is even about Abraham. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? More written about Joseph than Abraham. Joseph's an interesting guy. He points us to Christ. I'm not big on typology in the scriptures, but but Joseph points us to Christ, a cast out who had to endure a lot of affliction who brought deliverance for his people. You know anybody else like that? Jesus points us to a loving, sovereign God, and Joseph points us to a loving, sovereign God who works in and through our lives directly and indirectly, through, through the ups and downs of life, through the mistreatments, through the disappointments, through the relational struggles in many circumstances. Does that sound like any of your lives at all? Any of you enduring any of the ups and downs of life, ever been mistreated, gone through disappointment, had problems with relationships in your life, or do you get along well with everybody in your life? So this morning, we're going to jump into the story the final act of the story of Genesis and in the life of Joseph. But I'm going to read the first 11 verses this morning, then we're going to pray and we're going to jump in. So follow me as we begin in chapter 37 as we kind of wrap up what's going on with Jacob. And, and he'll get a little bit of a of hearing in the rest of these chapters, but mostly it's going to be a transition here now. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors, that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when it was told to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. What we have just read are the words of God to us. Do you realize that? God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired these words so that on August 6, 2023, you would come to a church and you would hear these words. How many of you believe that to be true? There's no circumstances here. There's no, there's no coincidences here. And so let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him to open his word to us this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. Use it to revive our souls. Father, your word is sure. Use it to make we who are simple to be wise. Father, your word is right. And I pray that it would bring joy to our hearts this morning. Father, your word is pure. May it open and enlighten our eyes and change our hearts. Your word is clean. It's going to endure forever. The things that we care about the most many times are going to vanish one day, but your word will endure forever. And Father, your word is true. It's perfectly right. It's beneficial to us. And in a day and age when we don't know whether or not we're hearing truth or lies, Every time we sit in front of your word, we can absolutely depend that we're going to hear truth. I pray that my lips would not distort that truth this morning. I pray that my lips would be a conduit of that truth this morning. And I pray that we, individually and corporately, would be humbled and changed and encouraged by your word today. Before I say amen, would you just in your heart pray and ask God to open the word to your heart today. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as Moses transitions from what has become the main character, Jer Jacob, to now the main character, Joseph, he picks up Joseph's life at a kind of a weird time, doesn't he, in verse 2. Joseph's 17 years old. How many of you remember, men especially, how many of you remember being 17? I mean, you were young, you were strong, you were definitely good looking, right? 
How many of you had a car by the time you were 17 that you could call your own? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you were living life large. How many of you at 17 men thought you had everything figured out? How many of you as parents of people who are 17-year-old know that they know that they have everything figured out? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've found to be true when I look at the scriptures and, and when I consider even the life that we live now, yes, it was a different way of living. It was a different way of doing things, but people really don't change, do they? Joseph's a 17-year-old boy raging with testosterone, probably dealing with zits, the whole thing, right? You know, he, he probably walked in front of whatever they had for a mirror in the tent, and he could bring it out, man, you know? He's a 17-year-old guy. And Moses picks up the account with this 17-year-old man. But I want you to think about some of the things that you've heard in the prior weeks that go into shaping a person's life. How many of you, if, if you're honest with me, would admit that, that your growing up had a lot to do with how you are today? It, it affects the way that we think. It affects the choices that we make. It affects the way that, that it even affects the food that we buy and eat and like, right? The way that we've grown up. And I want you to think with me before we jump into our text, some of the things that Joseph has had happen in his life. We know several life-shaping events, and I'm not going to go back and re-preach all the messages that we've been preaching up to this point, but we know from chapter 30 and 31 that Joseph's birth was the impetus for his dad to finally say, you know what, it's time to go back home. And so all of Joseph's life, he lived in a household until they actually got back to the land of promise. He lived in a household where his dad was somewhat discontented. He wanted to get home. And so he had to deal with that. He had a father who really didn't want to be where he was. He wasn't happy in his, in his employment situation. You ever have a dad who was unhappy about his job? Fathers, if you're unhappy about your job, it will spill down to your children. If you're not careful about how you handle that in front of your kids, that will affect your children. Joseph dealt with that. As a young child... He witnessed the events of separating from his grandfather Laban. We don't know what kind of relationship they had there, but, but, but he, he had to separate from his grandfather Laban, probably never to see him again. He witnessed a reunion with an uncle that he hardly had ever heard about, probably, Esau. And he witnessed the events that went along with that. He remembered the night that his dad sent them across over and that his dad stayed back. And then he remembered the next time that he saw his dad, his dad walked with a very pronounced limp. That will change a young man's life, won't it? He saw the aftermath of two of his older brothers when they avenged their sister's unjust rape. And, and, and he saw his father's humiliation in all of that. That will change a man, a young man, won't it? It will influence him. And then he witnessed the return of Jacob to Bethel. And I can imagine as the favorite son, more about that here coming up, but as the favorite son, I can imagine that when Jacob got back to Bethel, he put his arm around Joseph and he told him firsthand the account of everything that happened there. He gained a brother. He gained a brother in Benjamin, but on the very same day that he gained a brother, he lost his mother. That will shape a young man. 
And what's interesting is, all these things, good and bad, had an effect on young Joseph, didn't they? Make no mistake, though, and make no mistake about a couple of things. One, I think we can concretely say that this was God's plan for Joseph's life. You agree with me? Now, now, if you and I were writing this story, if you and I were writing the story for our own past, there are certain chapters, in fact, there are probably big portions of, that, portions of that book that you and I would have never written for ourselves, right? I wouldn't have chosen to be raised this way. I wouldn't have chosen to be in this family. I wouldn't have chosen, whatever it is, there are parts of our lives that we wish that we could go back and have differently. But make no mistake. The events and circumstances, even the place that he was in this family, was not a mistake to Almighty God. God had him exactly where he wanted him. And God knew all these things that were going to happen to him, that were going to shape him, and that they were going to affect him. And yet, one of the things that we don't ever find recorded about Joseph, not saying that it's not true, but it's not recorded in Scripture, is this. Jo- Joseph never uses his past, never uses the poor relationship with his brothers, never uses some of the things that we're going to see in our text today and next week. He never goes back and he dwells on those things and uses them as a crutch for the rest of his life. He doesn't do that. And so now, as we begin to look at this text, I want us to see this morning something that's very true of our own lives, whether or not we realize this. There are two big factors that, that really contribute to what's going to be a major upheaval in, in Joseph's life. That might be the biggest understatement I've made in a long time. Would you agree with me that going from living with a very wealthy patriarch in Jacob, and being the favorite son, to being a slave in Egypt is a major upheaval in one's life? Anybody agree with me on that? There are two big factors that contribute to this. And we see them clearly in our text. The first one is not one, and actually the second one, they're both are not ones that Joseph has a lot of control over, he just has to react to, okay? Neither one of these factors are things that Joseph set out to say, you know what, I'm going to set my life in this direction, I'm going to do these things, and my life is going to turn out in a certain way. Both of these factors are were beyond his control. He just has to react to them. And how he reacts to them will affect certain things. The first factor that I see here is, is that Joseph is by far Jacob's favorite. That, I mean, you'd have to you know, be really not intelligent to not see that in what we read, right? Joseph is Jacob's favorite. But let me put it another way. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph fostered an unhealthy relationship with his siblings. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph fostered an unhealthy relationship with his siblings, and it's, it's through that relationship with his siblings that he directly ends up in Egypt. Now, as we're working through this, let's just look at verses 2 through 4 again. Let me just read them again. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, and we've talked about being 17 years old. So, so understand, he's a 17-year-old boy that can't really be told, right? 
He's a 17-year-old boy who knows what he knows. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha. He was a boy. That kind of meant that he was kind of low on the totem pole. After all, he's the youngest guy. He's got older brothers. How many of you have older brothers? You know how that works, don't you? The youngest brother gets the, gets the worst of it, right? He gets the worst job. He, he gets the hardest work. And, and, and there he is. He's working specifically with Dan, with Naphtali, with Gad, and with Asher. The five of them have been assigned to work together. And, and these four brothers who, let's understand the family dynamics, of the four sons of Jacob, the least favored would be these four because of who their mother was. So you here have the most favored working with the least favored. And what he sees is not good. See it there? And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. It's been an interesting week of study. Thursday morning when I was sitting in my office and I was looking some things up and looking at this, it was really interesting to me how many commentators paint Joseph as lily white. Like, like Joseph is almost immaculate. Question for you. Who is the only perfect man who walked on the face of the earth? Oh, good. You guys didn't forget a lot when I was gone. Good. <laughs> Joseph's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's not a lot of negative record about Joseph. And so many commentators went out of their way to make Joseph righteous in this situation. But when you start to really unpack the words that are there in the original language, this idea of a bad report, when you start tracking down where that Hebrew word comes from, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce that Hebrew word, almost always in the Old Testament, it is a defaming, bad news kind of tattling that's going on. And I have no reason to believe that it's any different here. I have no reason to believe that it's any different here. Joseph sees something bad, but one of the things I know about 17-year-olds, and I don't know that they grow out of it, even young men grow out of it until they're probably 25 or until they have their first child, is young men are really good at drama. We think young ladies are good at drama. Young men are good at drama. And can you imagine this 17-year-old who is the favorite coming back to daddy and saying, you can't believe what, what those guys are doing. You just can't believe what they're doing. He's tattling to daddy, and he's probably embellishing the story a little bit to make himself look even better. What 17-year-old hasn't done that? And so... As he comes back and gives this exaggerated, dramatic tale of events, notice how that dovetails with how Moses records this in verse 3. Now, it's like, now we get a little bit more information here as Moses writes this. Now, Israel, remember Jacob's no longer called Jacob, but he's Israel, right? He, he, he is now called Israel, the one who strives, right? Because he strove with the Lord there. Now Israel loves Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Well, not only was he the son of his old age, but he was the son of Jacob's one true love, wasn't he? 
And the one true love is gone. And so what is he going to do? He's going to transfer that love that he had for his mother onto the son and onto the other son. And he is going to love them all the more dearly, isn't he? And notice what Joseph or what Jacob does. He made him a robe of many colors. Stop thinking Andrew Lloyd Webber robe, you know, technicolor robe. Your English translations don't get this right. I used to think of it, and I can remember flannel graph. Remember that stuff called flannel graph? I can remember the flannel graph of, of this multi-striped robe and all these gaudy, bright, pastel colors. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is, is he made him a tunic that was different than any other tunic that would have been in the household, okay? These people were shepherds, right? They were keepers of the flock. Their tunics were very similar to what everybody else wore in that day. They were sleeveless and they were short, okay? They were utilitarian. They're using their arms a lot. They don't need sleeves to get in the way, and they definitely don't need to be worrying about long trains. The tunics that they wore, the shirts that they wore, were short and sleeveless. They were, they were, they were built for working. Joseph's were long, long sleeves, long flowing tunic. It was the kind of outfit that you gave to the son of promise. And by giving him this tunic, what Jacob is saying very clearly now to the rest of the family is, Joseph's the one who's going to get the double portion. Joseph's the one who's going to get the double portion. Now, we've already seen this before already in Genesis, haven't we? We saw this in Jacob's own life, haven't we? Jacob wasn't supposed to get the double portion. Who was? Esau. But Esau forfeited it, right? Well, just like Uncle Esau, Reuben, who was the oldest, was supposed to get the double portion. But Reuben also forfeited the right he lost that back in chapter 35 when he dishonored Jacob by sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah. And so now, Jacob has every right to choose who he wants to choose, and he doesn't take the next guy in the pecking order, he takes the son that he loves the most. So you take these two combinations here, this combination of these two events here. You take the bad, tattling report that Joseph makes, immature 17-year-old, right? And you take that and you combine that with the fact that Jacob obviously loves him most. And all of a sudden, notice what we have here. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Stop right there. Dad's in the room. Grandfather's in the room. Pay attention up here. This is so important. This is a sobering minder that you as a father, as a grandfather, the way you treat and interact with your children, especially if you have multiple children, it can have a dramatic impact on their relationships. Dramatic impact. Jacob himself had been a part of a bitter sibling rivalry, hadn't he? And it had only been recently repaired. And remember, it was a big surprise to Jacob that it got repaired. He had been a part of a horrible relationship growing up with his brother. And that was due to the way that his mother and father had handled it. We've seen that in the scriptures, haven't we? 
Isaac and Rebekah handled that. I don't know that they could have handled it any worse. They're literally picking one and pitting the one against the other. And now, what has Jacob done? He's repeated the same sins of his own father. You know, it's really painful, isn't it, when you don't learn and grow from your own experiences and you make the same mistakes over and over again that you're, even your parents made? How often do we look at our past, though, and we see where our parents wronged us? And I think everybody in the room, we can find some way that our parents wronged us because our parents aren't perfect, right? The only perfect parents are you as a parent right now, right? We can look back and see how our parents didn't do things right, and, and we either use it as an opportunity to just cop out and say, well, this is the way I am because of my way my dad treated me or whatever, or we can, or we can just say, well, this is, this, is, this is something that I'm always going to have to deal with, but, but how horrible is it when we don't learn from our, from our parents' mistakes and how they influenced us? It's almost like we don't believe that God's grace can change anything, <laughs> And here's Jacob making the same mistakes over and over. You know what I found about parenting, to be very true? Parenting is one of the most humiliating experiences of your life. Anybody else agree with me on that? It will humble you more than anything that I have ever done in my life. The thing that humbles me the more was being a parent. And what you do with that humiliation, though, is key. If it drives you to depend on God and His grace and His wisdom, then praise God. And in Jacob's case, Jacob dropped the ball here. Now, let's stop and think for a second. Is that Joseph's fault? Is it Joseph's fault that Jacob gave him the coat? No. This is a circumstance that's been handed to him. And, it, and, it's, and it's really, this is real life Truth, day in and day out kind of stuff that happens in our lives. We can't control the circumstances that happen in our lives. We can't do it. I know there are some of us who think we can, and we micromanage it, and all that, all that micromanaging does is it proves to you all the more how much you can't control life circumstances. So you've got this big parenting mistake that's influencing Joseph's life. And then on top of that, then you have God at work. Does that just seem weird to you? <laughs> you, you, got, you got this parenting, this parenting gaffe that's being made here, and yet God here is going to do something too. And what God does is He doesn't make it better. It's not like God steps in and says, okay, you know what? Jacob's making a mess of this. I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to kind of smooth things over. Because now in verses 5 through verse 11, we have God speaking directly to Joseph, okay? He speaks directly to him twice through dreams, okay? And I, I, some of us are thinking, man, you know what? It would be really cool if God would speak to me in dreams today. I, before you think that, look at the results of the dream that God gave to Joseph here. You have something far better than a dream. You have the written word of God. 
But he has two dreams. He, have a, he has a harvest dream and he has a heavenly dream. Look at verses 5 through 8. He has this harvest dream. Now, remember, Joseph's 17 years old and he has this dream. And, and, and this dream is directly coming from God because only God can know what's happening down the road here to this point to give him these details here. God's speaking to him through a dream. And, and we have to question the wisdom of a 17-year-old man to repeat the dream. Right? But he does. And before you fault the guy, remember, he's 17 years old, and, and he's being mistreated by his brothers, and now God speaks, and he makes it very clear who, who, who's going to be the one here. And so look at verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Duh. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. I mean, it's a dream that, that they lived. They're binding sheaves, right? Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. Okay, you don't have to be like a master level course in interpreting dreams to understand what's going on here. Right? It's pretty clear what's going on. When, when there are... There are all of us are a binding sheaf, and I stand up, and your sheaves bow down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And the answer to that, people who know the end, beginning from, or the end from the beginning, is what? Yes. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I don't even know if it's possible, but the hatred that they had over the coat and over the way that he was tattling to daddy, that hatred grew even stronger because he repeated the dream. It's fair to say this about Joseph. Joseph, as a young man, doesn't have a lot of situational awareness. Right? But what 17-year-old does? He doesn't have a lot of situational awareness here. So he repeats the first dream, and then he dreams another dream, verse 9. He dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. In this case, he's in the dream explicitly there as Joseph, and literally the planets are bowing down to him. Verse 10, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall... I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to the ground before you. In other words, what Jacob is saying here is like, dude, keep your mouth shut. But it's too little too late, isn't it? It's too little too late. He rebukes him, yet verse 11 says this. It's kind of like Mary when she had a dream. Remember when Jesus is going to be born? What, what does Joseph do or, or Jacob do with this? His brothers were indeed jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. In many ways, Jacob is somewhat validating in picking Joseph as the heir apparent, isn't he here? There's something special about him. But you have these two events. And again, Starting out here in Joseph's life, I, I want us to understand this as we leave here this morning. I want us to understand this. Did Joseph have control over either one? Did he have control who, over who his father picked? Did he have control over the dreams that he was dreaming? No. 
And here we have God in the middle of questionable parenting choices at best and directly talking to Joseph through a dream, doing something that God still does today. You say, what is that? God is taking these horrible, what we see as random circumstances and events in our life, the, the horrible way that we were raised, the, 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 the terrible brother that he gave me, or the absent father, or, or, the, or the mother who was ripped away from us, or whatever, and he is taking these horrible circumstances that you and I see as negatives, and he is weaving a beautiful tapestry of grace from some of the darkest threads you will ever see. And many of you in this room know that. Many of you right now are in that, in that period of going through it where it's a very dark thread and all you see is the darkness of these threads. You don't see the beautiful tapestry. And what God does with Joseph is unthinkable when you think about it. And, and, and he's not the only one in Scripture this way. How many of you would sign up to live the life of Job? I wouldn't. How many of you would sign up to live the life of Joseph? Give me the last chapter, right? God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. And I think there are times that you and I, we, we come to the Scriptures, and, and, and after all, we live in good old America, and we have things good, and yeah, inflation's up, but we all have cars still, don't we? We all have a place to live. We have things pretty good, and we seem like we have some control over our lives. You don't like your job here, you can probably go get another job, right? You don't like this bank, you can switch to that bank. You can choose chicken over beef, whatever, right? And we think we have some control over our lives. And the account of Joseph reminds us just how little control we have over our lives. Just how little control we have over our lives. Over my time off, my, my reading in the Bible took me through, through some of my favorite texts of Scripture, and one of them was, was the account of Esther. You know, Esther had no control over those circumstances, did she? There were certain things that she did have control over, though, like whether or not she was going to go in and see King Ahasuerus, right? She had control over that. And so the things that she did have control over, she exercised wisdom and faith in doing those things. And the same thing is true for you and I. We have, we have no control over the circumstances of, of, of our past. We have no control over when we get in our car today, whether or not somebody on 37 is going to plow us as we're pulling out. We don't have control over that. But what we do have, church, friends, is this. We have a loving, all-wise God who knows what is best for us. And often what's best for us, what we learn from the story of Joseph, is, is that it's not only just about us. Joseph's story wasn't just about Joseph. You do know that, don't you? It was about a whole nation of people. And too often, I think, when we get negative circumstances in our lives, and, and I get it, I understand it, I do it myself, I'm not, not pointing any fingers without point, fingers pointing back at me, when negative experiences come in our life, who do we make it all about? 
this is terrible what's happened to me. This is awful. And meanwhile, the faithful, loving God is just weaving away at that tapestry, taking this thread in and this thread out, and he's putting a lot of dark colors in there that look really dark. But the thing, and I've said this before, and it's so true, and I've seen it in my own life, we only see the back of that tapestry, and it looks like a mess. But the beautiful thing is the other side that's just amazing. So as we leave here today, parents, how you deal with your children as individuals is so vitally important. How you deal with your children as individuals is vitally important. Don't fall into that trap of partiality or favoritism. What, think about Jacob. What a harvest of sorrow Jacob is about to reap. He's already reaped a harvest of sorrow, hasn't he? He's already seen his sons dishonor him. And all this pain that he's gone through is only going to get magnified even worse whenever Joseph is gone. Here's the thing. Maybe you've made some of those mistakes. I love the fact that there's always God's grace to tap into, isn't there? (laughs) Maybe you've made that mistake with your children. Maybe they're adult children now and you're like, man, I wish I could go back and redo that. You can't go back and redo it, but you can humble yourself and go to your children and say, you know what? I was wrong. I didn't do this right. Would you please forgive me? None of us, though, secondly, in conclusion, none of us can take our past experiences and use them as a crutch for where we are right now. You won't hear that in the world. Let me say that again. None of us can take our past events and use them as a crutch for where we are today. And believe me, I know some of us in this room have had horrible things, unthinkable things happen to us in our past, but we can't use them as a crutch. And the world is telling us over and over, yes, you are the way you are because of that, and you have every right to act this way, and people all around you have to defer to you because of this, because of what happened in your past. And that is so anti-Scripture, and it leaves God completely out of the equation. But it does tell me this, it's really important parents, especially parents of young children right now, it's really important how you raise your children. People in this room that are considering getting married, that are, that are planning towards that, that are, that are new, newly married, don't have kids yet, and you think you have it all figured out. We're going to be the perfect parents. <laughs> <laughs> Determine in your heart right now that, yeah, you're going to get it wrong, but you're going to, by God's grace, get it more right than you do wrong. It's important to intentionally point and model a love for Christ and the, and the, the joy of following Christ and, and, and to be honest with our kids about it. Following Christ means you're going to live a hard life. Is that true, church? There's going to be some difficult things in following Christ. Don't, don't lie to them and make it sound like everything is perfect because we love Jesus. If everything was perfect, then we wouldn't need to gather together as a church, Right? You do know a gathering of a church is nothing more than a bunch of people who are, who are helplessly dependent on a Savior who, who is providing everything that we need, right? We're all in this group together. 
And then thirdly, and we come back to this over and over again, but I got to keep coming back to it. The overarching theme in Genesis has been and continues to be the faithfulness of God. Okay, church, we just got through the first 11 verses this morning. And, and where we've left this morning is we've got a 17-year-old boy who has managed to alienate 10 of his brothers. He's even got his dad ticked off at him now, right? Let me ask you a question at this point. Is God faithful still? Is God faithful to Joseph? He is. And I don't know what circumstance you have in your life right now. I don't know where things are in disarray, but chances are there are things in disarray in your life right now. The question to you this morning is, is God faithful, church? Because if he is, then you've got to depend on him. And Joseph's going to find that out. He's going to find out that things aren't perfect here, and he's going to find out that, that he only has one thing that he can depend on, and that is Yahweh. And maybe, just maybe, God's put him in this position so that he will depend on him so that he can do greater things for God. But I don't want to spoil the rest of the book. This isn't a place of Joseph's choosing but Joseph, Joseph is exactly where God wants him to be. Father, I'm so grateful for the story of Joseph. And when we read it, just like with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, sometimes some of this stuff just seems just too big to be true. It just seems like, like some Hollywood writer got a hold of this and made it as Hollywood as you could be. But it's true. These things really happen this way. And if that's true, if you work in people's lives like you did in Joseph's life, who are we to think that you wouldn't work in our life the same way? Who are we to think that we wouldn't go through some hardship? Who are we to think that, that we won't get hurt in this life? Who are we to think that, that we're just supposed to have the easiest of easy lives? Spirit, forgive us for that kind of thinking and challenge us this morning, encourage us in, in a God who's faithful, who has been our God in ages past, and our hope for years to come, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.